Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Um, I just want to say I'm very pleased to be able to speak with Peter on this. It's a great honour to be here. But I, what, I, what I wanted to do was to um, really talk about his amazing book. And for those of you who haven't read it, I think the Silk Roads will change your perspective on global history. And just as a, an introduction, I'd like to one, I want to know how many people here have read or bought the book. So, so there's still quite a few who haven't. There aren't enough know, copies. Yeah, that's right. There aren't enough copies outside. They haven't heard. They haven't. Um, they haven't. You know, the word hasn't spread. That word of this wonderful book, or uh, and its message hasn't reached you. And I think that's where I want to start this conversation. Um, I mean, I was struck by the preface of your book, Peter, where you say that essentially um, global history. Uh, world history that we were taught, that people, many people here were taught at school and possibly at university, was very much a Western-centric enterprise. So I think you say in the book, and I'm not going to read, but I'm going to say that you know, there, was a, there was a sort of um, trajectory where Greece begat Rome, um, Rome begat Christian Europe, and then there's the Renaissance and the Reformation, and then we got imperialism and the rise of, the, of, of Western Europe and America. And I just wanted to say that one of the remarkable things about the Silk Roads is the fact that you shift, you shift the perception, you shift the um, centre of focus. And I just wanted to ask you about that. How did you come to, for this insight? Oh, s- small, gentle opener. Um, uh, well, I suppose it's that as a, as a, as a, as a boy, um, I couldn't understand why I was being taught about Henry VIII and his wives. <laughs> um, a lot. I got taught, I think, Henry VIII three times in my school career. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. And, um, you know, my, my children, you know, they, they do exactly the same things that I learned. They learn about the ancient Romans in Britain. Then there's a thousand-year gap where nothing matters. 
his work. And um, I, we know nothing about this because no, it was called, it used to be called the Dark Ages. Yes. Uh, and um, the, the, there was no explanation, I think, growing up as to why there were these big chasms. You know, and I started the book saying I had a map on my wall. And even if I look at that map today, uh, we are, as a community, and you know, each of you will have your own different interests, and I don't, I'm not tarring everyone with the same brush, but you know, we are totally disconnected from the world of today around us that matters, and we're totally disconnected from their pasts. Sure. Uh, so, you know, with all of you, all these clever people here this evening, you know, if you were to ask them how many uh, are able to name a Arabic pop star or a Chinese novelist, you know, these kind of very basic sure. questions, uh, we are detached from 80% of the world's population. And it's partly because of that straitjacket of history that we're taught. We're taught in a mantra about things that matter. That's what, that's what history lessons are for. This is how we came to be who we are. And I suppose you could make the case that that is fine 100 years ago when a quarter of the world was pink. How Britain came into being and Henry VIII and his wives is a huge part of that and the Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment, the first dissections here. But I think if, if you um, found any other equivalent to the Royal Institution before 1600 or 1700, those great experiments were not happening sure. in Europe. Those great experiments were happening in China, in Asia particularly, and, and in fact in the Americas as well. But that, that, that locking in of what matters in the past means that we disassociate reality. We, we, we basically create history as a sort of string sure. of myths where we get very comfortable about right. what, what that, that progression that's led us to who we are today. And, you know, you have to deal with this as an MP, things like human rights and so on. It's very easy to forget that our own past in terms of human rights, protection of you know, tolerances of sexuality, religion, skin right. colour, gender, etc., etc., are, are deeply, deeply sure. flawed. And I think when you take that triumphalist view that we today are the product of only things that are good, yeah. uh, you create a story and a past that is, is at best, I suppose, um, uh, through rose-tinted spectacles. And at worst, it's actually misleading. I mean, I, you know, I took a photo of the building outside as we arrived. Why the Royal Institution is designed to look like a Roman temple or Greek temple, <laughs> right. or we sit in this kind of model of an amphitheatre, is because we somehow have positioned ourselves to be the heirs of right. a classical world. And actually, that's not how the, that's not how the Greeks but, and the Romans saw things. But what, one of the things that interested me about your um, introduction, your preface was how you explained how you got to your own insight. Because I know you personally, we're friends, and you have a Central European background. Um, the sorts of things you learnt were, you learnt languages, you spoke different languages at home. Um, and that really, I think, gave you an insight um, that many people can't reach. Um, and I just wanted to ask yeah, a little bit yeah. about that. And then you, uh, you know, you I think languages are important. I mean, actually, I think what, what really matters is not... Speaking languages and know your grammar, that's, that's obviously a sort of fundamental skill, I guess. But uh, what is very important growing up is to, to realise that you don't understand the world around you. Um, I think that was the best thing that my parents have brought us up, is that you, we'd sit at lunch and at supper and wouldn't know what anyone was talking about. Uh, you wouldn't understand why there was someone suddenly bursting into German talking very anxiously about, about the Berlin Wall or talking in Spain about Franco. Uh, and you, you would realise you couldn't follow the narrative. And in fact, back here in the classroom, it seemed very straightforward. Everything right. was logical. It all dropped into place. But what was, I think what was important for me particularly was that when I was 15 or so, I was at a school, was very fortunate that I was able to learn Russian. And um, over my summer holidays, uh, my parents left us, I'm one of five children, left us all on our own to 
get intensely bored, and we tackle that boredom um, through through reading books. You know, we had lots of books around, and one of the one of the first things that I discovered as a teenage boy was um, Turgenev, a great Russian writer, and his the first book I read is called First Love, which is quite a good thing to read as a teenage boy in the middle of a forest where there's nothing else to do. You realise that life is tragic, <laughs> tragic and flawed, and the person, the girl you're going to fall in love with is going to break your heart and so on. Uh, it's, you know, it's quite a useful thing to sure, do. And, sure. and I came back to, to learn Russian, and my Russian teacher, who you, you, you'll know who I'm talking about, arrived sure. at my first Russian lesson 15 minutes late, Yes, yes. singing. <laughs> and uh, it took him a few minutes to open the door. Sure. And um, he then sat down and said, look, you boys who've chosen to do Russian are either clever or worse, you think you're clever. <laughs> and he said, I'm not going to teach you grammar. I'm going to teach you how to really understand a language. And I sat there, I was quite diligent, you know, my pen poised over my, you know, what should I write down? And he started singing again. Yes, yes. And then he stopped singing and he said, if you really want to understand a language, you've got to learn to sing the songs of their peasants. And uh, I think if you tried to say that today, you'd be sacked. Yes, that's right. I mean, you'd be, uh, for every, you'd be sacked for being late. You'd be sacked for not being able to open the door quickly. You'd be sacked for not teaching correct Ray. You'd be sacked for the sort of... And yet, there's something very profound about this. And you know, Is a, it the peasants or the... Well, peasants the in Russia means something very different. Sure. But, you know, it's, I suppose it's right. If you really want to know what people think, you have to do this at the moment about sure. Europe. Okay, you could listen to people sure. here or... Go listen to people outside a pub at closing time. Are people talking about Europe and Brexit? Right. Is what do people really react to? What are the, what are the real nodes that are getting them going? And how do you listen to that? And I think what was helpful was he, by default, treated us like we were grown ups, sure. and we felt that we were on our own. If you wanted to go discover things sure. about Russia, you had to go and read. And, and so and so and then you you went to Cambridge. Um, and it helped for that. He t- he missed my lower sixth year. He was sent out to Baghdad. So you managed to get into Cambridge. So he came, no, he came back in my last year and said, well, I'll teach you. He'd been to Naval Intelligence. Yes. He came back in my last year and said, I'll teach any of you boys Arabic in uh, a year. Okay. So by the time I went to university, I not, not just spoke good Russian, I had some Arabic, and I was aware that that world, you know, I'm a child of the Cold War, sure. where we were taught to hide under something roughly this That's size. Right. In case of a nuclear bomb, right. keep your eyes closed, right. and somehow things would be fine. I remember that world very well. I and, and of course, the young, you know, people under the age of 35 don't understand it. No. You know, my students now at Oxford were born after Tony Blair that's became right. Prime Minister. So, so right. as, a, as a, you know, which is important, that, that, that disconnect of who was bad in the world sure. and who was difficult and where, where threats came from is totally different to my perception. So... Uh, I knew that that you know I was called. I remember being sort of watching uh, Gorbachev and Reagan signing their disarmament agreements. I remember the, the, of course the Berlin Wall coming down. I was 18 at the time, and that world changing. I already knew uh, was going to change for good or for bad. But I also knew that that whole history of the of, of east of the Berlin Wall really had mattered once upon a time. And why was it that that, that had just been written out of the script? And, and the other thing that I found so extraordinary about um, your preface and your book was the fact that. Um, it made me think, as I read this book, how the world had changed. I mean, we're talking about being at university in the early 90s and what the preoccupations were and, the, you know, you mentioned the Cold War. And I remember bunkers, you know, as children that we were going to go down when, when the nuclear winter came. Um, but that world very rapidly changed. And so by the time you and I were at university in the early 90s, um, we were in a different world. But reading your book... I just think in the last sort of 25 years, the world has totally transformed. And in a way, your book 
despite its incredible historical uh, feel and, and sensitivity, is really a book about the modern world in the sense that this book couldn't have been written when we were at university. I mean, it could have been, but it would have been a very different... Um, it would have been a very different... had a very different feel. And, and in a way, what's happened, I would suggest, probably in the last 25 years, is that you know, the Silk Roads have suddenly come back into our consciousness. Yes. And I just wanted to know what you, what you thought about I think about that's that. probably fair. I think, that, I think that it couldn't have been written in the same way with the world of communism. No. Um, I think that's right. Um, you know, I suppose, you know, it's something which, which you know, I don't want to... It's, it's, a, it's, not a, it's not a personal thing, quasi. But, you know, I do think that, that it is shameful how our education system is structured sure. in this country. Um, you know, I'm not in the education department. No, I, I know, but, <laughs> but from what I understand, you have, so I, I know you have friends who might be. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and it's, it's shameful for lots of reasons. It's shameful because of the way we structure our, our society uh, into winners and losers, and education in particular works that way. Uh, there are all sorts of you know, private and state, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's the thing that is, the, the, from, as an educator myself, you know, as an academic, the thing that I think is most shameful is the failure of an education curriculum to adapt to a world around us. So okay. it was all very well teaching me about Henry VIII, but you know, since I was at school, uh, the Berlin Wall came down, uh, China's economy quadrupled in the last... Well, since Royal Bank of Scotland first admitted it was defrauding its customers. Uh, apartheid ended. Sure. Uh, you know, we see liberalisation and change uh, in the Americas, I suppose, if, not, not necessarily entirely on track, but, you know, and, and then Iran rejoining a family of nations, which, you know, we'll see still early got, days. We've got Islamic fundamentalism as well. I mean, you will remember... Yes, we've got all of that. And I can tell you with my students, you asked uh, the, bright, you know, the brightest of the bright in Oxford, have you read a, a, a page of the Quran? And nine out of ten will say no. Sure. Uh, you ask them if they can name a Chinese novelist or who's the greatest Chinese emperor in sure. history. Sure. Can't name them. Uh, who is, you know, do kids your age in Moscow today listen to Britney Spears or Justin Bieber or whoever it is? You know, do they? If not, who do they listen to? And how can you, as a global citizen, on the one hand, you're told by everybody about globalisation, you can download stuff for free, you can listen to music for free, you can search whatever you like. Uh, how is it that we, have brought, we are bringing up an a, a, a generation who, who are um, pressed with the same load of nonsense that we're told but, about. Because, because, for example, sitting in the Royal Institution here tonight, as a parallel, we have, in, back in Oxford, the Natural History Museum, where we have the 27 greatest scientists in history mm. on the wall. And there's not a woman amongst them, sure. which, tells it, which tells one story. There's not a single one of them. I mean, they're all names you'll know. Leonardo da Vinci, Aristotle, he's a, he's a bit of a rogue choice, maybe. Sure. Euclid, sure. Uh, Pythagoras, uh, Galileo, and so on. Sure. There's not a single scientist on the wall in Oxford who is not for the Western That's world. right. So, and so when, when you have that distorted, uh, myopic and idiotic view of the world, it means that you are unable to understand right. modern Russia. You are unable to make the right decisions about how to deal with Syria and Iraq. Sure. Because, you know, you're, you're, you know, you've written about uh, Ghosts of Empire, terrific book, um, where you, you know, you've understood or tried to understand sure. the, the, the experiment with Iraq uh, in the 20th century. That's right. But it means that we, we, we now live in, a ra in an age of unreason. You know, our, dis our views about the world around us are based on gut feeling rather than on, but, on, on, on experience sure. or on knowledge. And so, for example, you know, I, so I know I'm not going to talk about Brexit, but Michael Gove, separate to the Brexit, as part of the Brexit discussion, 
you know, in a way that you can get trapped in TV interviews. It doesn't, you know, you can't hold, be pinned by it, but said, you know, we live in a world where we're sick of listening to experts because sure. they're normally wrong. That single comment from the former education secretary is, is a shameful yes. indictment. Well, I and mean, I'm not asking you to defend Michael Gove. And, it's, and, and, I, and I'm, not <laughs> trying to, I'm not trying to attack Michael, Michael, Michael Gove, actually. I'm really not. I mean, maybe I could or should, but that's a different you story. You already have. <laughs> no, no, no. That, no sure. I think that is symptomatic of a way in which we sure. engage with this world, that we should rely above all on how we feel and what we think. And if I ask for a show of hands in here, who thinks that Putin is a strong leader, good leader, etc., everyone would... Well, there's one. Okay. Not everyone, not everyone. You know, we, we, you know, or we talk about Iran or the Middle East. We tend to sure. lead with our fists but, rather than lead with our brains. But, yeah, we're speaking in 2016... Um, and we look back on the last 20 years, and I think a lot of your judgments are fair. I think what I would say, and what this book really brought out to me, was how quickly things changed. Um, you know, the world, I remember leaving university, I graduated in 1996, and really in 1996, if we can go back, I remember the uh, American presidential election that year, and the Republican ticket was Dole and Kemp. I mean, this is a very, very different world, very kind of establishment, very safe, Fukuyama's end of history. And, of course, you know, nobody in 1996 could have uh, depicted the world of, of 2016. Well, I think, you know, I mean, the thing in that, I think we have to be uh, sanguine about the role of historians because I don't believe that there is this sort of shifting of the gears where suddenly, think, you know, there is a rhythm of how the world develops. And, you know, in fact, it's not 96. The, the right point to measure from, I'd have thought, would be um, August or you know, September the 10th, 2001. Yes, that and, was the clear. Uh, and at that, that point, uh, what the action of 19 lunatics did sure. with their backup uh, of flying planes into, into targets in the United States, uh, that dislocation, what it should teach us, there are lots of different messages it should teach us. As a historian, uh, the story is not about terrorism, fundamentalism, ideas, and religion, and so on and so forth. The point, I think, is to underline that fragility sure. of the world which we live in, that fragility by which uh, these are not unusual events. No. The fact that a single attack, but unexpected, at the wrong place at the wrong time, or the right place at the right time, can profoundly affect our world, is something that, that has, has been the case for thousands but, of but years. I, I think I would slightly disagree with you in the sense that, to say that they are unusual events, it's just that there are lots of times when unusual events happen. Well, yeah, I go back I to mean, my table. Couldn't... I was brought up in a world where nuclear war was a question of when, not if. And arguably, however, however terrible the world is today... We are presumably better off today than we would have been with nuclear confrontation okay. between Soviet Union and, Russia, and the United States. But we can fall into that trap, I think, of feeling that our gener we're somehow living through unusual times. And I think if, the, if this book tells you something, it's that those, those big switches of global centers of gravity, are you can't stop them. No. There are fundamental truths, there are fundamental reasons for those shifts. But, and, but, but and, where uh, I would slightly differ from you, I mean, you, you're an academic, I am a politician um, in terms of sort of day job. And actually, I think from, from, the, from, the, from the academic's point of view, I think you can, you're sort of in touch with the rhythms. You yes. know, walking through the parks in Oxford or wherever it might be. No, but it's a slightly different, whereas people who are you know, who feel that they are, you know, in, in, in the centre of Westminster or Whitehall, the view from there is one of constant crisis management uh, for lots and lots of diff different reasons. And so a lot of the issues that have emerged... Well, because MPs, but with all due respect, tend to think they're incredibly important. No, they do, they do, but all politicians do. Yes, they do. And it might well be 
that actually when those, the waves are breaking, there's nothing that you or all your colleagues could do to stand in the way. You know, and in fact, at the moment, how I see it in the world, we talked a little bit about it outside, and I'm not, it's not a discussion about Europe. For me, what is important to, in today's world, in 2016, the future of Europe is a sideshow yes, in I a agree. much, much bigger picture well, of where change is happening. And we have no engagement at all in the discussions about the 23rd of June about how and what world of Russia, the Middle East, Iran, China, Pakistan and India... 80% of the world's population, huge you're absolutely right. Growth. And, yeah. and I think that that is a product of the straitjacket of our education. It's because MPs are always worrying about crisis management. Yes, we are. Uh, yeah, they're right. always trying to mop up the, what did Michael Gove that's say right. about experts right. on TV right. and how do you back out of it without sort of being inelegant and stop cheap shots. And that's, that's not the point of it. But I think that that walking around the parks, that world that you talk of, Funnily enough, I think I have a greater level of responsibility than an MP. No, no, because I, I, if you get this wrong, if you don't present your ideas entirely accurately, entirely rightly, there is no back out of, I just made a mistake, or let me clarify. You put your heart and your soul on a page, you let yourself be judged by your academic communities, and by, you know, the, in the national press, international presses, and it has to actually stack up. You have to have done your research. You can't guess what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, but I, and, and this, but book this, isn't, where, this book isn't this about is what's where, going to happen. It's about how we've reached where we are but today. But this is where, the, in terms of the process and the mindset, it's a very different thing, because... And you said you're quite right. I mean, politicians think they're self-important and all the rest of it. But the kind of mindset that they have, given the 24-7 media, given the um, constituency um, constraints and, and, and that um, uh, pressure, means that the way in which they approach problems is very different. I mean, I've got an issue with a third runway in Heathrow, which is right next to my constituency. Right. And generally, people like... Um, I mean, people... I hope there's nobody... Um, who's massively campaigning against the third runway here. Maybe there are. But the third runway is something I've supported. But the point, the more relevant point, is that we haven't worked out whether we want a third runway or not. And this is, debate has been going on about 20 years. Um, I mean, literally. I mean, I, I go to Dubai, I meet ministers in Dubai, and they say, we're really pleased that you're indecisive because Dubai is going to overtake Heathrow uh, in three months' time. And, and, you know, you, you're, you're absolutely right to... to, to well, you know, in HS2, know. it's going to be the same problem, that's which right. will be chronically over budget. It'll um, take 20 years. Was it 20 years, something like that? Or however long that, it's going to take? That's right. So where, to give you a sense of the scale, so in 2015, 7,500 containers were shipped from China to Europe by train. Mm. By 2020, that would have risen to 7.5 million. Right. Okay. That's right. So the scale of which uh, new worlds are being knitted together infrastructure being created, whether it's through motorways, whether it's through train lines, whether it's through um, new airport hubs, uh, whether it's through basic interventions of government to try to build things that people in developing parts of the world need, sure. like in Pakistan, sanitation or energy plants that, don't, that mean you have constant, you can keep the lights on all the time or your internet doesn't drop out. Those kinds of things, that sort of, you know, it's, that, that, that idea where uh, your help is actually practical and well-directed, we are totally, we are out of position. You see, the, 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 the world you describe and the world that we have in Britain, the two kind of mindsets are very different. So, you know, the countries that we've described, when I speak to Dubai, you know, there's a very central commanding authority um, who decides, I mean, generally it's Sheikh Maktoum, or if it's in Dubai, it's the Anayans, and they say, we want to have a three-one-way international airport, and it gets done. I mean, right. and, and China's very much the same. It's a very centralised... System and the worlds that you describe in yeah. this book, you know, is a world of emperors, of great khans, 
of um, warlords, uh, people who exercise a huge amount of authority with what Clausewitz called the unity of command. A highly developed modern democratic system, like the one that yeah. we have here, I'm afraid doesn't act with that sort of... Uh, yeah, but so, um, uh, so here's um, the problem. It's, it's how and we look at the past. And actually, Britain's greatest glories were at a time where we weren't democratic. So are you uh, at, a time just... where, at a time where we had very small elites okay, making decisions for... Uh, okay, for okay, that's and so, so you, could, you, could, you could cut it both ways, which is uh, we've reached the stage where uh, democracy is, our golden, uh, is sure. our, our golden measure because we've seen what happens that in the continent of Europe we're able to murder six million Jews in the Holocaust uh, because we, decri- we, we only decriminalised homosexuality in 1967. Mm. I think that's correct. Uh, you know, we have ter- you know, we, we realise how brutal we are able to treat other people in our own continent. And although, you know, we have the, 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 the joke, leave, leave, you know, we should leave Europe and stop the German advance going up on billboards, you know, the 20th century, in terms of bloodshed, how the Europeans, how we treated each other, was, was in a way that defies all, all belief. But, but this is my question. I mean, you, you've said, you've posed, that, a, you've posed an interesting problem. I mean... You see, the, the title is The Death of Democracy, part of the title of the, of the talk. But, but what is, I mean, you've described a world in which democracy at some level isn't working in the Western world. And, and to me, that's self-evident. I mean, I don't know how a, a figure like Donald Trump um, emerges as the Republican nominee for Britain. Something's gone wrong. Um, I mean, he's an entertaining guy. He's a showbiz guy. But uh, you know, I think it, the, the, the system the, the, wasn't the, designed. But you've got to, I think, butter um, the bread both sides. So there's Trump, but there's also Bernie Sanders. Both are talking to a constituency. I completely and, agree. And there is, some, there, is some, there is something you've got to listen to. What, it is, what is it that is catching the tide? And, and with those kinds of things, I suppose there are different... You could give a different answer, but all of which are true. One is rising levels of inequality. So in the United Kingdom, for example, as you all know, Quasi, because you're broad-minded, we now rank on the World Bank Gini Index. We are more socially stagnant in this country than yeah, Sierra yeah. Leone, Niger, or even Kazakhstan. But, 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 so it means that if you're born in the, in the bottom I, I 20% of this that. country, you are stuck there. But, but forgive me, you do, you do what academics really do very well. You've described the problem yes. brilliantly. Yes. And you, but, but I'm just wondering, how do we actually... How do we... <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, you, you, you've said that democracy has its failings. What are you proposing? Do you think we should get rid of our democracy, get no, something no, no, else? No, no, Quasi, you, you, you're the one who chose a life of politics. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm hoping you know, you're I, a smart I'm waiting, guy. I'm waiting to you're serve. You know, all, I, all I need you're is a, a phone call. Get you're, a smart, phone call. you're a smart guy. I mean, I'm just, it, it's very interesting. And the worlds of which you describe, I mean, they're not, it's not a democratic world. And, it, and that's the part of the richness of it. Which world? The, the world of the Silk Roads. I mean, the worlds, rather, of the Silk Roads. Yes. Um, it's a world of empire building. It's a world of trade routes. It's a world of excitement. It's a world of intellectual endeavor. Yes. It's a world of intellectual curiosity. But it's not a world of mass democracy. I mean, you talked a, 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 a bit but about d- the end. D- democracy, we can forget, is um, the great gift of, to- of prosperity. When you are prosperous and wealthy, you can afford to be open-minded and tolerant. And one of the great worries, I think, of the Western world, Britain, France, you know, Western Europe, United States, are those rising levels of intolerance. And the kinds of, dis- the kinds of, you know, the kinds of things you all know about with Trump's comments about Mexicans, about Muslims and so on, are hugely damaging. And they, sure. they have repercussions, not just for how we see it, but in large parts of the sure. world where right. this is reported. And this does proper damage. But I think that, that that is a symptom, and it must be a symptom, of the fact that we are acutely aware 
that the world in Britain, the Western world of tomorrow, is worse than the world of today. It is, it is going to be worse for our children. It's going to be worse for our grandchildren than it was for us and for our grandparents. And that's even with the context of global warfare. So, you know, the Financial Times, you know, are absolutely clear about the, the rising levels, both of inequality, but also the fact that um, it's the first generation in recorded European history where it's guaranteed that the standard of living of, of the next generation is going to be worse than ours. And I think it stands to reason, as, as a historian, Britain's last 300 years, which were by and large pretty good, it's unlikely that those next 300 years will match okay, it. But, but the, the, the question, I mean, when you talk about 300 years, I remember, I'm um, reminded of the story of the, forgive me, Oxford Don. Yeah. And do you remember they're, they're sitting in Christchurch or whatever? And yes, yes. The, the investor, the investor, the bursar says, well... Um, Actually, it's Peterhouse, Cambridge. Is it Peterhouse? They, bought, they, it, bought, they bought the long lease of a hotel site from Goldman Sachs. And I think it has 300 years to run. Something like that. And, and, they, said, and they said, but do you understand? You know, it's not 30 years. You haven't misread it. And he said, no, no, we, we, we at Peter's plan for the long term. That's right. And they said, they said well, the, the, the story I read, I mean, it's an apocryphal story, but the story was about 1940. And they said, well, of course, you know, um, land, uh, our land investments have done very well in the last 300 years. And I can't remember this is the... Yeah. And then, he, and then the, the Don said, well, you do realize the last 300 years have been very exceptional. Um, in terms of the, uh, um, so that was the that was the yeah. long that was the long view. That was my version of, of the story. But 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 I think that I think that you know, and, and I'm very wary of making predictions like that. Yes. Um, in terms of what will happen, because no one really foresaw the internet. Um, no one really foresaw. I mean, you would not in 1995, certainly not in 1990, have foreseen you know Facebook. Uh, Google sure. and, and sure. all the, 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 the companies. So, so there lot, there's lots of technological innovation that can happen. But I'm interested in this idea... But that's not the worry. The greatest fragilities to our society, right, to our world, are an engagement with the Seventh Fleet over Chinese airspace. Yes. Uh, where there is, you know, there, there's a proper... You know, if 9-11 teaches us something, is that a single act, or effectively a single act, of dislocation, violence, unpredictable event, can dislocate the global financial community so, to, to the point that, you know, if, we, if you look at it, I suppose, as a global historian, what, I mean, it's an extraordinary chain of events, but those 9-11 attacks have helped clean up the banking industry yeah. uh, because how money laundering works, how the scrutiny that banks put under in, in Central America, the United States, and here, is a direct result of, of preventing but, terrorist money flows. You mentioned so, the Seventh Fleet and the China Seas. I just wanted to pin you down on China. Because I've got a certain view of China from your book, and I've, I've got a certain view of China from reading other books. I mean, to what extent do you think China represents a geopolitical threat? I mean, to what extent do you think the, the Middle Kingdom, the Chinese Empire, the Chinese Communist State is an expansionist um, insurgent power in, 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 in the modern world? Because there are lots of different views about this. Well, there are two principal views. Yes. Um, and where do you sit? Do you think that, that they... That, the next world war, if there is going to be a world war, will be between China and, uh, well, and the I think US. These, both, both these views, I think, are totally flat wrong. I mean, one is dreamt up in West Point by, by American military strategists who've read Samuel Huntington, who talk That's about right. the world as a clash of civilizations, right. and China's going to rise, and that will threaten the American way. And then there's the benign, it doesn't make any difference, it's all going to be lovey-dovey, and so on. I think that those are both oversimplistic, and so on. I mean, it's very simple with China. There's a population of between 1.2, 1.5 billion. It's clear that the Chinese themselves are not absolutely yeah, sure yeah. what their numbers are. But at the moment, the Chinese consume 48% of the world's pigs, about 45% of the world's steel. Uh, now they've liberated the one-child policy. Uh, Chinese population is going to grow. 
significantly, and Chinese, uh, whether the, whatever the slowdown is going to mean or the new normal, uh, Chinese energy consumption uh, in the next 15 years is going to travel. Sure. So uh, China, forget about it wanting to take on and create problems with any of its neighbours, needs to work out how to do the best job it can for its own citizens. How does it have access to the right commodities that it needs? How does it have access to clean energy? How does it have enough access to foodstuffs? How does it try to build investments across the world that will allow China to be able to function? And they know, the Chinese, like all good functioning states, know is that the greatest risks are instabilities. And you know, the Chinese are really having to work hard. To, to, and but, but how does China interact with the rest of the world? I mean, I know it has to do... I mean, every state has to deal with... Well, you know, I, again, pressures. I you mean, tell me, Quasi, we have, not, we have spent zero effort in this country, zero effort, sure. dealing with Russia, with Iran, with Central Asia, with India, with Pakistan, with China. These countries crying out for... We can throw a state visit every now and again. But well, we, well, have, we make no investments. We make, we make some investments. I mean, it's unfair to say that we don't... You know, the, the private sector uh, doesn't invest in these countries. I mean, we, we export uh, uh, yes. capital to... Okay. to these places. Uh, but, you know, w one of the great tragedies, I think, of the last 15 or 20 years has been the, the failure of the British political elite to engage right. with, with their peers in other countries. I think that's a fair point. I mean, I mean specific, specifically with regard uh, to certain departments of state. Um, but I won't, I won't go there, so um, we'll, we'll move on. Um, no, I, I don't, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to trap you. I think it's that we, we have turned it on ourselves here. You know, 150 years ago, if you were a schoolboy at Halebury, your Wednesday evening homework was translation from Persian to Hindi. Yeah. You know, we, we understood. And what do you do on a Wednesday night? <laughs> <laughs> I do Hindi to Persian. <laughs> uh, just for fun. Just for fun. Yeah, no, no, translate no, David Bowie lyrics into Arabic. I think you have... I think you make... I mean... I think, I, the, point, I think the point, Quasi, is, is that we are detached. We are disengaged from the world around us and the world that, that matters. You know, the, the world's fastest 20 growing economies, not a single one of them is in the Western Hemisphere or the Americas. Right. And, those, and it's not just opportunities for investment and so on. The great challenges all come from these parts of the world. And I think it's very striking. And I'm not, not trying to, you know, it's not about individuals, it's not about departments. But, you know, there, we do not have a friend here in Britain. Or, you could add Europe to that, actually. So it's not a... It's not a but east of Venice... You know, we don't like Erdogan, we don't like Putin, don't like the Saudis, don't like the Iranians. Well, we quite like, I mean, let's, 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 I, 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 I don't think you're right about that. If you I were think... a, okay, if you were a Saudi advisor, uh, would you say that are there relations, but are the view of the Saudis in governments with the corridors of power in Europe are balanced and fair? And... I don't think it, I mean, because, I, I mean, forgive me, I think, you're, I think you're conflating a lot of things. So there was actually a debate this morning in Westminster Hall about Saudi Arabia. And if you read the debate, it was, who took it, part it, of it, was, it was SNP uh, called, it was an opposition day uh, debate. The SNP? The, SNP, the Scottish they, National Party? The Scottish National Party. And they're very hostile to Saudi Arabia, by the way. Are they? Because so when, for various reasons, for humanitarian reasons, for their, and also the, um, the strategy of the SNP is to, they speak a lot about foreign affairs because their ambition is to be uh, an independent country. And they take the view wisely that one of the things that marks an independent country is a well-developed interest and policy in foreign affairs. So they, they, they do lead these debates. Now, if you were to look at that debate, you would see that there were people on the conservative side, on the Labour side, other sides, who were actually more supportive of Saudi Arabia than the, the SNP. So within the West, I don't think it's right to say that 
we, you know, we've, we're sort of friendless and we, we don't engage with these people. The problem that we've got in the West is that there are lots of different voices. So if you look, and I, I find this when I go into the, in the Middle East, they say, oh, you know, I read The Guardian, you hate us, you say terrible things, and I say, that's one section of British opinion. There's a large try section the of Daily British opinion. Yeah. yeah, try the exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. So that, that no, you, you made yeah. the point against yourself beautifully. Yeah. Um, well, against that point that yeah. you were making. So there's a wide range of... But I think your broader issue about engagement with the world is... Well, so, for true. example, this week, as you'll know, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, the sanctions against Iran come to the end of this year. That's right. And almost certainly the Iran deal is going to be either turned down or more sanctions will be reimposed. Yeah. Well, you see, the, the, but, the, but the issue there is that um, the Saudis were very hostile to the Iran deal. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say, on the one hand, that, you know, that America's not engaging with Iran. By, by rejecting the nuclear deal and also alienating South, Saudi Arabia because they're, they're, they're mutually... Well, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Byzantine historian by training. Yes, that's right. And what you learn in the Byzantine world is that you need to um, play every side. Uh, and you learn... And the Byzantines, you know, we, we, right. it's, a, it's a terrible word in English, by the way, Byzantine. It's sort of smoke and mirrors. It's all sort of untrustworthy. You know, Quasi will know, you know, as you all know, because you're engaged here on a Thursday evening when you could be getting ready to watch the cricket highlights or something yeah. else, you know. And you'll all know that the Byzantine Empire actually was called the Roman Empire. It was the Eastern Roman Empire that, that functioned for a thousand years. And it functioned in a way that, uh, you know, maybe we should learn more from in, in Europe. And I don't just sure. mean the European Union. You know, it was multiclimatic, multi-regional, multilinguistic, multi-faith, you know, multi-regional. You know, it was, it was, it, it worked incredibly well. And it was, it, and, the worst place to be, by the way, if you want to build an empire, is to be in the middle because you can get attacked by everybody. Sure. Our, great, our greatest calling card in, in this country, the reason we did so well, was because we don't have any land borders across sure. Europe. Sure. And so at a time when the French, the Austrians, the Germans were having to put hundreds of thousands of men into uniform, we could invest all of our money and energy into shipbuilding. And the chances of us being invaded by sea were always pretty small. I, and and it, meant that, it meant that as our economy grew and we had higher calorie counts, all this stuff is in the book. It's a terrific sure. read, by the way. It's uh, very good. Uh, you know, the, the, your physical location matters. And, and uh, in the Byzantine world, surrounded by everybody, what you had to learn how to do is never to alienate people. Sure. You had to do your very, very best to keep your thoughts hidden. You had to work out how to um, prepare for the fact that the person you're dealing with today may have a bowstring tied around his neck in the middle of the night and you're dealing with his absolute rival. And that ability to be fleet of foot is crucially sure. important for long-term planning. And so I don't agree with you. I think you do need to play both sides. You need to find a way where you have doors that are always open on, on all but sides. The, I'd be trying to play it. And so your Iran and Saudi one, I would throw it, you know, with, with Putin, what kind of channels of communication the, you're able to, what's the, able to keep open? Problem, and, uh, the problem with my understanding of the Byzantine world in which you yeah. operate is that you, and actually it's a pre-internet world, which we sort of remember, is that you could get away with saying different things to different people in a way that in the modern world, in the internet world, it's very tricky uh, to do that. You know, I could, you know, it's very difficult for John Kerry to say to the Iranians, you know, we love you, you're my best well, friend. this time last year... And at the same well, time, this to time last to, year, to Riyadh, This time last year, John in Kerry gave an interview on, on, on NBC which said that we're thinking of using the nuclear option against Iran. Yeah. Well, that wasn't the, the smartest thing maybe to say. But, <laughs> but, but, but what, well, what I'm saying is that there's a world of total transparency. And as a historian... Um, and you, you will have seen this, and I, I tried this. I mean, there was a man called uh, Faisal II of Iraq who was uh, king, king of uh, Iraq uh, in 1958. He was brutally deposed in 1958. 
And he happened to have a, a house in my constituency. I mean, it's just a pure coincidence. But the house was sort of raised. And I wanted to do some research. And I, I managed to get, get his, his, his will and lots of things online. He was killed. At, he was killed. He was he was uh, executed. Had his legs chopped off, or his feet chopped off. Dragged Nasty the streets. things yeah. happened to him. Yeah. Very bad things. And and also his chief minister, uh, Nouri Al Said, who, who dressed yeah. as a he tried to escape Baghdad dressed as a woman in a full chador. Yeah. And I think his um, his shoe slipped off. And That's right. He got caught. They worked yeah. out that yeah. uh, well, they saw his ankle and it wasn't a perfectly formed female ankle. And yeah. It ended badly for him. But the point I wanted to make was that in terms of um, you know disclosure. Um, and what we call Byzantine, you know, it's famously called Byzantine dipl diplomacy. It's very difficult to conduct a kind of Byzantine system of diplomacy in a world of, you know, WikiLeaks, Facebook, Freedom of Information Act, um, and the internet. That's all. That's all I was. I well, was funny enough, you know, in fact, the WikiLeaks. I mean, I was very lucky when I when I wrote this book. I, 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 you know, you, you get to the to the 20th century, and it's, it's you know, you, you think that the story's f familiar, fair, you know. I mean, mm, what can you really sure. say interesting about the Second World War, or particularly about the last 20 years, it's all quite fresh in our minds, and so on. And in fact, there is an enormous amount of material, enormous, and the Russian, you know, the stuff I've written about the Second World War, it's I think enormous. hopefully will, will change how we look at what was really going on with the invasion of the Soviet Union, and how important sure. Iran, Iraq, and so on were even then. But uh, I was very lucky, three things happened uh, for the most recent period first, WikiLeaks, which is kind of, there is something there of the indiscreet finding out that Jennifer Lopez is paid to sing at a 17-year-old birthday party and so on, and sure. corrupt elites, okay, fine. Uh, the Edward Snowden stuff, equally, is not that much that we don't already know. Uh, what was particularly interesting was the um, underneath the presidential palace in Baghdad, Saddam Hussein recorded every conversation sure. he had, and that archive was all uh, was all was all being uh, started to be transcribed, and you could you could play through things like when Saddam Hussein listens to Ronald Reagan taking the airwaves in 1986, saying, "My fellow Americans, three months ago, whatever it was, I told you that we would never be selling weapons to Iran at a time when the United States was was bad, you know was breaking the breaking law the law to uh, its own laws to sell weapons to Iran and supporting Iraq at the same time." Uh, my head still, my head, no, my heart still tells me that's true, or my head now tells me that's wrong. And Saddam Hussein presses the off button and says, "What is it with these guys that they are arming our enemy while at the same time trying to help us?" So that that is more damaging than WikiLeaks uh, and the stuff that has been declassified by the Senate trying to work out what went wrong in Afghanistan and Iraq is the most damning of all. Where you can see across five slides of a PowerPoint presentation Donald Rumsfeld's invasion plans for Iraq. Sure. And when you see it in, that, in its absolute horror, and you see what you talked exactly right about, that, that short-termism, that right. need for a head on a plate, that need for vengeance, that need for action rather than thinking, you know, it takes you back to, to Strabo writing in the first century saying, what is it about Europeans that they always try to solve their arguments through force That's rather right. than through reason? And, you know, and, and the, Iraq, the Iraq and Afghanistan, one can, one can I think, one can over-focus on it to think that this was exceptional. But actually, you, you know that those interventions are not the last 20 or 30 years. They are interventions in the 1970s. They're interventions in the 1950s. Right. They're interventions in the 1940s, 1930s. And in fact, that way in which we have engaged in these parts of the world is not a recent phenomenon led by you know, a particular bad breed of Tony Blair and so on and so sure. forth. It's a, it's a constant, it's a constant but, but, failure to engage in other parts And this links of the back to what you were saying at the beginning, where I have a slight disagreement. Um, I think they are, these are very unusual times. I mean, all, all times are unusual in, in, to, to a degree. 
But I think the way in which uh, public opinion, I mean, Thomas Carlyle famously said, force of, public in a, uh, force of public opinion, what king can withstand thee? But, but actually, I mean, it's far more accentuated now because of the technological revolution that we've seen really in the last 25 years. Yes, and I think the, the pressures in the 24-7 media... That might media, be the tail wagging the dog. You know, I think um, we, we, that, that rise of populism yes. that we see in the modern world is, not, is maybe facilitated by the fact that people could tweet... The whatever comments Donald Trump might make, and it goes around the world quicker. Yeah, but he tweets them. That's okay, the, that's but it, 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 the, the speed is what's interesting. It yeah, goes, it speed, goes quicker that we can see it in real time. And I'm sure all of you tweeting saying how articulate Quasi is well. <laughs> uh, this evening. You know, so the speed is important, but actually, I don't think that it's um, that yeah, dramatically yeah. exciting or, or or different. I think what's what's clear to me, or I think anyway, is that the greatest troubles we have now is how do we how do we prevent uh, that feelings of those feelings of isolation, those feelings of exclusion that are articulated with, um, on the one hand, with rising anger and fundamentalism, with migration, all these kind of things that are poisoning the waters, because there, there are fundamental issues that underpin all of those. I want to throw this discussion, very interesting discussion, free-ranging discussion, open to the floor. So, if you've got questions, I'd be very grateful if you could stick your hands up so that I can see who to ask. So, this gentleman here. If I understand you correctly, you were saying that democracy is born of prosperity as a system of government. Uh, if that's the case, and if our prosperity, at least in relative terms, which I think is what you're saying, is declining, will, is set to decline, does that mean that our democracy doesn't have a future either? It's, there, there, you know, it's how long is a piece of string, I suppose, and I don't want to go into lecture mode. But you know, the, the reason why there was emancipation of the genders in and, and proper suffrage in this country after the First World War was because we was through because of suffering because of so many people had been killed in the First World War and women had been seen to have had a good war by helping out at factories and you know not throwing bricks through windows like the suffragettes had been doing uh, before 1914. So at that point we forget I think that Azerbaijan and Uzbekistan uh, allowed women to vote before we did in Britain and um, so I think that there is a there is a sort of point at which we are able to be tolerant of each other's views and opinions when um, the garden is bursting with fruit. States and countries, regions, empires, doesn't matter whether it's a democratic system or not, where people are, are, uh, are worried, where they're fearful, uh, where they are scared about being able to feed their children and worried about the world getting uh, tougher and meaner, more difficult, tend to make bad decisions when it comes to voting. And uh, 1930s Germany, I think, is the most useful example of that. I suppose you might as well throw in Austria in the 1930s as well, where more than 90% voted for the Angelus. You know, where, where, where you have economic contraction, you find fear being bred. And fear is, is a highly emotional... You know, it's, it's, it's the strongest of all of our emotions because it, it makes us make those short-term decisions and it makes us uncharitable, ungenerous. So we, we've had 100 years, I think, despite the First and Second World War, of, of hope and optimism... And in terms of what is the future of a democracy, I think, with any luck, what we have learned is that the cost of the price of treating people uh, disgracefully is, is something which we need to, um, to avoid. But, you know, I think that in this, you know, looking, at, looking at Brexit in three weeks' time, about half the population are going to be unhappy. So we'll take it, this lady here in the white. Okay, so I... I think I remember a quote saying that democracy thrives on humility. And so shouldn't basically schools introduce education on character? Wouldn't that be a common ground? 
because you know it's an indirect way to kind of respect your neighbour. So schools, character formation and character formation. That sounds very familiar. In your case, <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, I'm surprised that Francis Fukuyama has not got more of a mention in no, this I, debate. I did mention him. I did mention him. You did him mention once. him, but very briefly. His thesis was that Hegel had won out over Marx. Marx was wrong, Hegel was right. Liberal democracy was going to be the way of the world. That's where we were all going. He didn't know about um, Islamic societies. He, he set them on one side as a kind of question mark at the time. Um, I think that the, 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 that question mark has become much more dominant and, uh, and, and a much more prominent problem. So, I mean... Are you saying that, um, are, are, that Fukuyama was, was wrong? We, we are no longer on a trajectory towards the world becoming gradually more liberal and, and democratic, and, and, and that, that, that we don't know where we're going to go. Um, yeah, so I'll answer that one. My mother told me when I was growing up, if I don't have anything nice to say about someone, just don't say anything at all. <laughs> so he's answered the question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, well, you know, I think it's. I think he was. He was. He was wrong, wasn't he? So, I mean, that, that's that's not the world. That's not the world. That's not the world. It's not the world. How, I mean, everyone's different. That's not how the world looks like to me. I think. I think the point about the Fukuyama. I mean, I read the book as an undergraduate, and I think it was so much a product of the Cold War. It was so much a product of the elation that we felt when the Soviet Union was dead and that the Berlin Wall came down, and it felt like liberal democracy and McDonald's and the internet would take us to a world of harmony and sort of utopian sort of prosperity. But of course, 9-11, Islamic fundamentalism, um, the, the, the increase of religion, religious fervor in, in global politics. Russian intervention in the Ukraine, the total failure of the United Nations to feature in any of the major discussions um, or problems yeah. of the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, the rise of China, unfettered, and so on and so forth. You know, I think, I think one could, one could catalogue through uh, proving, you know, the, the mathematical proof of where Fukuyama maybe... No, I think it's, it's right, Quasi said, that it was a product of its time. Yes. As, as far as the, uh, the character formation, I, I agree. I mean, as, as a father, uh, you know, I try to bring up my children. What, I learned f what I've learned from being a father, and I, I think what I've learned about myself as a result, is that wh where we tend to learn is when you make mistakes. Uh, you tend to learn when you get things wrong in business. You tend to learn when you get things wrong, and you, you know you you give a talk about the death of democracy. People don't agree with you. You know you then you're then forced to go and reflect. Those moments are very positive and very important. Okay, more questions. Yep. No, I'm looking around. Sorry, I'm just you know at the top. Um, I realise that this is in a sense counterfactual history, and that brings us a whole host of unique problems. But if say over the last 20, 30 years, you could change one thing. You know, if you had the power of a god, you could change one thing that you reckon would make Britain a better place, in, you know, a more global place, like what you were talking about, how it's, its sense of insularity. What would it be? Should we, should we, do you want to answer that? I mean, that seems to stand alone as a question. Should we just do that? Break uh, it up? Yeah. Uh, I would never allow Big Brother to be on the TV. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. I think that was a brilliant answer because that actually opens up a whole area of inquiry. I mean, Big Brother completely changed the nature of entertainment, the nature of participation. 
and it led to the X Factor. It led to it directly to The Apprentice. It yeah. led to Donald Trump. It led to. Um, <laughs> and we're all special. We could all be special. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's a very good. Yeah. It's a very good answer. Okay, well, let's take a, a group of questions. Uh, this gentleman here. Thanks. Um, I suppose my question would be about why, if sort of Europe's fading so much, there happens to be such a sort of migrant crisis or so many people who want to come to Europe. And then with London in particular, you know, London's often seen as the world's leading city. It was in the evening standard the other day. How can Britain be sort of fading or the future be so bad yeah, when great. London's doing so well it's as very the good rest point. of the UK? It's a very good point. Do you, do you want to deal with, with all those three? I mean, uh, I've got an observation about what you said. Yeah. Cool, you go. Um, and I'll, go, I'll say that I'm always struck by Americans complaining about how America is going to the dogs. And typically, when I'm in Washington or New York, the people who are complaining about it are mega billionaires who have no interest in emigrating from America. So clearly, it's worked for them at some level. Um, and they don't really feel that, um, that their under, position is under any real threat because they would have left, much like the Russians did. So it's a, very, it's a strange paradox that we, we complain about you know, imminent de decline, and yet we boast at the same time that our house prices are going up. Well, okay, you know, so I'll be a bit more aggressive than that. You know, we last month tried to cut disabil disability benefits. You, know. you should stand for Parliament. I'm just thinking about this. You know, you're, you're, you're absolutely... <laughs> sounds like a... It reminds me of the hustings I've been on. <laughs> we tried to cut disability benefits. So the idea that we're growing and it's all going to be tickety-boo, you know, London is the United Kingdom, first of all. Sure. Um, uh, and so, you know, I think one needs to be sanguine about that. You know, I think it is... Um, it, the reason people come here is because people believe that the British are fair, they believe that we have a good legal system, and they feel their rights will be protected. And that is something which we should be intensely proud of. Um, and personally, that's why I think that we should open our doors much wider than we do. So I happen to know that we have, uh, in, this, in London, this great urban city... Uh, and the number of Syrian refugees that have been resettled in the last six years is 43. Not 43,000, it's 43. Okay. Mm. Those, those, are, those, are, those are not Okay, my... let me just turn this on. I mean, this is very interesting. So, so where do you live? Me? Yeah. Well, I don't tell you. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think you mentioned North Oxford. <laughs> if you ask me like, aggressively, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I live in anyway, Oxford. Yeah, yeah, I live in Oxford. And yeah. how many migrants have been settled there? Well, you know, I'm, from a, I'm, a, I'm a migrant. My, sure, my mother's sure. Swedish. My, father, you know, my father's a refugee at the end of the Second World War. You know, I, I'm not typical of anything. Uh, you know, and I'm not going to try and use my own experiences sure. uh, to, to try to make general points. But you know, I think that the reason my parents came here and the reason why lots of people's parents came here or the ancestors came here, the reason why all of Western Europe has been settled by migrants coming from the East. You know, we're all parts of waves of migration through through from 4,000 BC, the next wave at 2,500 BC, through the Goths, the Hans, you know, and so on and so forth. That constant migration, because Europe wasn't a settled continent. That, that, you know, I think it's very easy to uh, have that sense of entitlement and feel that we should lock the door after we've got it ourselves. But I think that the, the things that I'm most proud of about this country abroad are the fact that we treat people fairly with respect and we have a legal system that is the best in the world. I think we've got time for probably two or three questions, so stick your hands up. Could it be easy ones? Um, can they be easy ones? Did you hear that? <laughs> now you, sir, uh, in the T-shirt. My question is, do you think it's inevitable that the center of gravity in the world changes to east? Or would the decision makers decide it? I mean, for instance, Paul Kennedy makes a point that we were at this stage in 16th or 17th century, where China was contending to be a world power, but it burned its sheep uh, and uh, turned its back on the world. Okay, that was a great question. So can we... 
get this gentleman here. My question is, with the combined knowledge that you've acquired over all these years and all that you know, if you had the ear of the world leaders and they sat down and let's God forbid you become an MP, a minister and a prime minister, and you're sitting in this table, what is it? What is the advice at the end of all this knowledge and wisdom you've acquired that you would pass on and enact? Okay, we've got a question about the shift to the east. Um, I whether, got, I got, I got, whether that's got inevitable, yeah. and then the advice to the world leaders. You know, well, I think it's. I th I mean, my view is that what matters in the world are, are resources, and that's not just oil and gas, which you know, clean tech is going to supplant at some point, I suppose. But it's things like food, clean water, um, you know, all the things we need for our mobile phones, the beryllium, the dysprosium for our laptops, and we in the West don't have anything. We never have done. We've got a financial services sector where if I, were, if I was able to talk to Quasi, anticipating the next one, I'd lock up, I'd put in prison some of the directors of publicly yes. quoted companies like RBS who defrauded That's their customers. But the only people who pass proper fines on those are, are the European Union, by the way. So okay. that's a separate story. So you know, I think that, that you would look at where the things that matter are. And for, for countries that have uh, agricultural sectors, energy sectors, and so on, and we in the West have to marshal our resources carefully. Uh, the piece of advice? The piece of advice, Does well, that dovetail? You're uh, going to knock everyone up? Uh, uh, despite, uh, despite writing a book that's called uh, History of the World, I, I'm, I'm a, by nature a modest man, so I don't like to drop <laughs> names. Uh, but I was, in, I was in Central Asia last week with uh, Romano Prodi, Ehud Barak, François Fillon, um, Alexander Krasniewski, and Alfred Guzenbauer, the former Chancellor of Austria, where people do sit... Uh, interestingly, guess how many people were there from Britain? Zero. Yeah, that tells its own story. But, I, think. I mean, this has been a complaint about the British has fun for about 300 years, by the way. Uh, well, you know, there is a point, you'll understand what I mean, with that, and it's not you or your colleagues specifically, but that sense of entitlement that we can worry about our own backyard without sure. trying to understand the bigger picture. You know, I'm a historian, and that, that's, that's, my that's what I do for my living, but you, know, you do need to understand the past properly to have a sense of the present day. OK, we're going to have one more question, because we're, we're reaching the end. Uh, and I'm going to pick uh, very randomly. Is there anyone... There's the, yeah, the gentleman here try, has tried to get in for a while, so I'll, I'll give it to you. To what extent, uh, going forward, do you see Braudel's approach to history, the primacy of geography, Braudel, as yeah. being relevant? It's a great question. Actually, can I just... Uh, just I, I didn't bring this in. Braudel had this wonderful phrase, which I, you're probably aware of, but your book actually is, is, is almost a kind of brilliant variation and um, exposition of this phrase. He said that, you know, you've got to look at Europe as a, as a, as a, a peninsula on the edge of the Asian landmass. Um, and actually, that's... Peter's written arguably one of the best books and certainly the most comprehensive book that does that. Um, and, and so I don't know... I, I 1099, mean, 1099 after the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, I mean, I, I was... I'd be, because we didn't talk enough about... As much as perhaps I would have liked about your, formate, your, your, your inspirations as, as a historian. Uh, well, in like... my introduction, I had my last sentence had been from Brodell, which said, Brodell puts it very elegantly, he says, uh, you know, I'm, the job of a historian is to be brave and to try and write about things that are uncomfortable and, um, you know, let, let know what, whatever problems you have with my book, don't attack me for being overambitious. And my editor said, you know, Fishwick, get rid yeah. of it. Get rid yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So take that. I said, no, I said, as well, so. so I said, it's very important that I put that in so that I say that I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make the sense of it. I'm not trying to whatever. And he said, just get rid of it. People, if they're going to attack you, they're going to attack it. That's right. And if they're not, they're not. And it, it, is, it is a very, um, 
I don't quite know why I did it. It's a very bold thing to try to reconfigure the, the world in this way, to read these sources and put them all out on display, because you are asking someone to chop your head off and tell you that you made mistakes. So there is a sort of humility, I think, in, in listening to people say such nice things about it. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled. But one of the themes in the book that comes back and back again is the effect that climate change has on the formation of some of the great big um, land empires in history, particularly on the Huns and on the Mongols. That climate events through, whether it's volcanic eruptions, whether it's through shifts in polar ice caps and so on and so forth, have a profound effect on the rhythms of global trade, on movements in political power and so on and so forth. And so that fits in with this world of, of Brodel and Montesquieu, where your climate, if it rains a lot, right. you know, what is actually going to happen if, we, if, if your crops get flooded and suddenly the agricultural sector in whichever, whether it's our country or elsewhere, becomes unproductive or parts like of the Aral Sea uh, mean that you know, you're, you're putting people out of work. Could I just say that that was, as a last question, I could not have scripted it more beautifully um, because actually that was one of the things that I probably should have brought up and you, you've closed it beautifully in terms of your approach to history you know, Fernand Brodel, the great uh, French historian, uh, a possible, uh, a definite inspiration. And actually, it fits in with what we started off with at the beginning about, you know, the limitations that, frankly, a lot of British historians have, um, who don't, we don't have this uh, grand view, if you like. And I think the Silk Roads um, is very un-British in the best possible way, in that way, in that you've got the breadth of view and you've got a, a geographical... Uh, range, which is uh, hugely impressive. Well, on, on that, because then, then you could... I, I, I'm incredibly grateful to Hannah and Intelligence Squared for getting me here this evening. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful to Haywood Hill for doing the books outside. Please don't just support me, support them. Independent booksellers are important. And to Quasi giving up his time. For those of you who are not entirely convinced by my performance, um, uh, I heard Margaret Atwood talk earlier this year, and she said she hates talking in public uh, because if you like pâté, you should never try to beat the duck. <laughs> uh, so the book is much more eloquent and much more fluent uh, okay. than, than, than I am um, but I, I'm very Excellent. grateful for, for, for this evening and to all of you for coming this thank evening thank you very much, yeah. Thanks very much thank you for listening you can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud if you'd like to find out more about our events sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter what are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.